when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with award-winning and New York Times bestselling author Jean Kwok. Let's find out about her writing process and newest novel, The Leftover Woman. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. And I'm Jean Kwok, and I'm so thrilled to be here today. There are a handful of authors who I make sure to read all of their works. And for me, your work's fall into that category. I have to read all of them. And The Leftover Woman is no exception to being a new favorite. And it's already on October's Library Reads Top 10, which is amazing. So can you introduce our listeners to your newest title? Well, I am so thrilled. I was just telling, you know, the two of you how excited I am to be doing this with two librarians, no less. So what could actually be better and yeah, the library reads top 10 was just an incredible honor and so meaningful to me personally as somebody who really was saved by the public library system. So that was fantastic. Yes, my new book is The Leftover Woman, and it is about what happens when a young woman in China gives birth to a child and is told shortly afterwards that the baby had died. She grieves, but she finds out a few years later that her daughter had not died, but had been placed for adoption by her own husband to a wealthy American couple, another casualty of China's controversial one-child policy. And so Jasmine, the birth mother, at the beginning of the book, has followed her daughter to New York City to try to get her child back with her husband hot on her heels. This is a book that is releasing in October, uh, which is fall. From what I understand, fall is where all the big, big releases get put out. So what is that like? How important, how exciting is, is it to be a fall release? It's terrifying, guys. <laughs> it's so terrifying. It was like, you know, they were like, oh, we think October will be a great date for you. I'm like, October? I mean, I, I mean, clearly you guys are in the know, but I, I think to normal people, they're like, what's wrong with October? That's great. It's holiday season. But it is, but all of the biggest, most best-selling, most award-winning writers, you know, they all release in the fall in the lead up to the holiday season. And so it's always the fear that if your book comes out at that time, that, you know, that you will be lost and that there'll be no publicity and that the book will just disappear. But I've been really, really lucky. There has been a ton of publicity for the book. And, you know, but like, for example, right, it's a, a top three fic pick for the CBS New York Book Club pick. You know, the other two are like, you know, Mary Kay Andrews and James Patterson, who has sold 425 million copies, you know, and me. I'm like, okay, hi, <laughs> please vote for me. I totally please. did. I voted for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I did as well, but it's and it's not because of, of of a secret grudge I have with Mr. Patterson or anything of that nature. <laughs> no. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I think he's got enough votes, so I don't think we have to worry about him. I think he's really fine. <laughs> and there's a lot of things I learned about in The Leftover Woman. I had never heard of like snakeheads before, and it made me really think a lot about the one-child policy and what that would have been like for families. You always incorporate the immigrant experience into your books, which I greatly appreciate. 
And each book looks at different aspects of that and allows me to see the world through your characters' points of view, and they always stay with me after reading. So what do you hope your readers to walk away with after they read The Leftover Woman? Well, I think that is such a great comment, Sarah. And, you know, it's true. Like, I, what I try to do when I write my books is that I want them to be really, really propulsive. You know, I want people to have a great time reading them so that, you know, just a story should be enough to carry you along to be like, well, what's happened? Because, of course, The Leftover Woman is told from the point of view of Jasmine, who's the birth mother, but also from the point of view of Rebecca, the adoptive mother, who is wealthy and a publishing executive. And, you know, when the book starts, has a pretty perfect life that then crumbles, you know. But the thing about Rebecca is she absolutely adores her adopted Chinese daughter. And it's about what happens when these two women's lives collide. And what's kind of amazed me when I wrote the book is that the one-child policy in China has really had an enormous impact on China and on Chinese as a whole. And yet so little has been written about it. Like if there's there have been nonfiction books, but actually there's it has not really been used as a setting in fiction very much at all. Like not that I could find. And so I was hoping indeed that people would kind of read this incredible page-turning, romantic, thrilling read but also learn something about the one-child policy and Chinese culture and immigration and race and wealth at the same time. Another thing about your writing is that you tend to put a lot of your real life into it. Uh, Where do you find yourself drawing that line between giving a very personal story and sharing too much of yourself? Well, you know, another excellent question. And the, the thing is, that's why I write fiction. And that's why it's so great to write fiction, because you can take something that's, you know, very personal to you and translate it into the world of your story. So for me, for example, in The Leftover Woman, you know, what happens is that Jasmine is pretty voiceless and powerless in her life in China, um, because for those who may not know what this one child policy in China is, is that, you know, the Chinese population was booming tremendously. People were used to a culture where they had a lot of kids because infant mortality was high. And so that was the way to have, you know, a kind of safety also because there's not really like a retirement system or anything in place. So you need to have children to take care of you in your old age, et cetera, et cetera. And the belief was that girls married out of the family and belonged to the family they married into. And boys were, you know, the core of the family. They perpetuated your family line. And so also, you know, our a lot of the old religions are based on ancestor worship that have to do with, you know, members, your descendants praying to you to keep your soul alive. So there are a lot of reasons that males were favored. But then the Chinese government decided, okay, we need to control birth rates because we're not going to be able to feed everyone. You know, we really just have a huge problem. And they said, well, you know, people are allowed to have one kid. That's it, one child. And what happened was that the sex ratio just started to skew tremendously towards boys one way or another, you know, like were girl babies being aborted? Were they being left on the side of the road? Were they being placed for adoption? You know, I mean, whatever was happening, what the result of that now is that I think there's something like 32 million more men in China today, you know, 32 million. So it's not like a little skew, it's huge. And 
a lot of those girls were placed for adoption in the West. And my novel is definitely not saying like, you know, that's a good thing or a bad thing, because I think that there were, there are, it's a very complex argument on both sides. And that's what I tried to portray with Jasmine and Rebecca, both, you know, I love both characters equally. They both love the child tremendously. And in the end, I think The Leftover Women is a book about unity and not about division. It's about the things that we have in common more than the things that drive us apart. And I was going to ask a little bit more about your two characters, because it is primarily Jasmine and Rebecca's point of view. And both are flawed, but both are so relatable. And um, the, the dual perspective also kind of helps build that suspense in the novel. So how do you approach writing from two perspectives? You know, that, that's like the really fun part because you can project a part of yourself into each perspective. And, you know, to Steve's question earlier, I mean, indeed, what I really feel with Jasmine is that I am personally the youngest of seven children and, you know, not male. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, in the family hierarchy, it was really like, you know, gender and age and at by both of those standards, I was at rock bottom. So I really felt voiceless and powerless growing up in a very traditional family where I was not allowed to disagree or voice a dissenting opinion of any sort, especially not to my brothers and my father, etc. And so I could put that part of me into Jasmine. But then Rebecca is a modern woman who is smart and ambitious, and she's got this thriving career and a handsome husband, and she comes from wealth. But her life isn't perfect either, because like so many women, she's trying so hard to keep all of those balls in the air and she's being judged so harshly. And she's really like, she's really doing her best. And like you said, she is so flawed, just as Jasmine is. They both make huge mistakes over the course of the novel, but you can understand why they make those mistakes. And, you know, it doesn't take away from them really being good people who are just trying their best. And so it's really fun to have to inhabit both characters, but also from a structural point of view, in the gaps between the two narratives, you can have a lot of mystery going on. You can have a lot of things where the reader's like, whoa, what's that? And how's that going to resolve itself? And oh, no, we can, we know that, you know, Jasmine's doing this, but Rebecca's doing that, and they're going to collide. And how is that collision going to play out? So it's it's really like, it's a really fun thing to do, although it is also technically difficult in a lot of ways to write a book like this. Well, I enjoyed both of the characters equally. I, I would hop and be like, oh, I like that one. No, I like, no. And the end, I was like, even, they're both perfect. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. That's what I'm hoping. You know, that I'm hoping that people will be like, oh my gosh, I can feel both of their choices you know i can feel where they're coming from and how is this going to ever work out and that that was hard to figure out how to make the book resolve in a way that felt satisfying i want to jump back to something you said just here a moment ago about uh, finding commonality obviously we're we're in today's world where we seem to be more divided than ever about things um what drives you to make a book that seems to be searching for those commonalities between people well i mean exactly what you just said right it's just i think I think it's such a pity that we live in such a divided world right now. And I think we don't need to be divided because honestly, 
we all have so much in common with each other. You know, you sometimes you see conflicts erupt and it comes from one person coming on too aggressively and the other responding. And before you know it, you've got like World War Three going on, you know, and I just think think that for most of us, it's like we can try to find some kind of middle ground. You know, people are not evil. No one is evil. We are really all trying to do our best, right? We're all trying to create a safe, productive, happy environment for ourselves and for our family and for the people we love. And I, you know, and I believe that you can't gloss over things. I think that what I try to do in The Leftover Women is to create a really fun read that also delineates the complexity of these issues, you know, of being a woman, of the birth mother versus the adoptive mother, of having an interracial adoption and having a child that's not the same race as you, of immigration and of class and wealth and how that divides us and how, you know, that also colors the way we see the world, maybe unwittingly, so that hopefully, you know, readers kind of come in for a great read, but they leave with a little bit more insight into themselves and into other people. There was a, in the research for this, I found a quote from you where you talk about the hardest part of being a writer is creating something from nothing. So what is your writing process like? How do you, how do you go about creating that something from that nothing? Yeah, well, I have a million files um, and I try to allow myself to be really, really free, especially at the beginning of the process when it's just kind of, you cast your net very, very wide and, um, you don't even really know what the book is about. Sometimes if you're lucky, you will channel a character and the character will be so vivid to you that you'll be able to just tell that character's story. With The Leftover Women, I had that with Jasmine and Rebecca, but I also knew I wanted to tell this kind of story. So for me, it was kind of moving back and forth between character and plot so that I love the character, but I also think a lot about the themes, you know, the themes of the book. What am I trying to say? What do I want to talk about? What is at the heart of this for me? And what kind of story will be best suited to this? So, you know, I start with a lot of brainstorming and free association and writing kind of little snippets and pieces from each character and then I do do a large scale outline. So not, I can't manage to do a very detailed one, but one where I kind of hit the main points in the book, where I know, okay, this huge thing is going to happen a quarter of the way through. We're going to have a big climactic twist around the middle. At 75%, this other thing is going to completely explode and fall apart. And at the end, I think more or less, this is how it's going to wind up. And so I have a very broad shape of the book, and then I refine it as I go back and forth. And then I usually kind of swing between looking at the outline of the book and um, writing chapters. And then sometimes, you know, the chapters and the characters are just like, no, we're not going to do that. You know, <laughs> like I'm thinking, all right, you know, this is, this is going to be a love story. We're going to have a kind of side love interest here. And then you get there and she's just like, oh, no way. He is not for me. And you're like, ah. Ah, so that blows up that whole storyline and you've got to think of something else. You're like, okay, so he leaves her cold. Um, all right, what are we going to do instead? And, you know, that kind of thing. I, I saw on Instagram that uh, you had disassembled a plotting cork board where it was basically a bunch of index cards and it looked like a massive stack of stuff. So how detailed do you get in, in those corks? 
Well, I by the time I get to the corkboard, I have actually written a lot of the book. Um, so sometimes what I do is I write the book and then I outline it. So sometimes, you know, a lot of people outline and then they write. That's actually a lot smarter. <laughs> That's much more efficient. But that doesn't really work for me all the time. Like I outline a little bit ahead. But like I said, you do have to be true to your character and to the feeling of the book. And so sometimes if it's, you've actually manipulated something that doesn't feel realistic enough, you have to let that go. So sometimes I'll follow the prose and the words and the characters and write it, but then I will outline it. I'll outline it so that I can see what's happening because I always want my books to be a great read. I want somebody to go in and be like, oh, I'm so immersed. I can't wait to figure out what happens. I can't get up. I've got to keep turning the pages until I know what's happened and I finish the book. And so in order to do that, you know, I can never read it fresh because I wrote the thing and I know everything. So the closest I can get is actually to outline it. And then I look back and I'm like, okay, so this happens and that happens and that happens and that happens. And I'm like, well, that's kind of really boring. <laughs> like Maybe that's really boring. Maybe I need to spice that up a little bit or talk to the other point of view, or maybe it shouldn't be so easy for her to get that job. Maybe she should have a harder time doing that would that fit thematically better so I'm kind of always moving back and forth but yes I'm amazed you saw my huge cork board that I posted long ago <laughs> on uh on social media you know it's the joys of being librarians we're part spy <laughs> <laughs> yes I love it you guys would make the best spies right who would have more knowledge than you yes and speaking of research, you did a lot of research yourself. You interviewed a lot of individuals firsthand for writing The Leftover Woman. Can you share a little bit about that process? Well, indeed, because this is such a controversial issue. I really felt, you know, I had to make sure that I spoke to people from all sides of the story. And also, you know, I grew up knowing those people because, of course, I am. I was very poor. I'm a first-generation immigrant. We moved to the U.S. when I was five years old, and we lived in an apartment that didn't even have a working central heating system. I worked in a factory from the time I was five. So, you know, I really come from a world where people are not, don't have means. And sometimes when you have means, you're better able to escape issues like this. So, I, you know, I knew the one-child policy really devastated so many people that I knew. I mean, I knew girls who had been abandoned or placed for adoption or, you know, had been kind of saved by a family member who was then bitterly resentful of having that extra mouth to feed and needing to hide the fact that it was an extra child. You know, they would lie and say that it was the twin, for example, that was a similar age child in the house because the penalties were devastating. I mean, the penalties were like people were forcibly sterilized, abortions, or, you know, fees of up to like a year's salary um, and being fired and, you know, really, really devastating. So I spoke to people from that end of the spectrum, but also knew people who had adopted, you know, Chinese girls and loved them and felt like they were a member of their family and had brought them up in the West and spoke to girls who had been adopted and had grown up in a completely different culture from the one that they'd been born into. Some were happy, some were less happy. You know, I spoke about what that experience was like, what they felt like, spoke to teachers, uh, librarians as well, just all types of people 
around the issues in the book. I spoke to a language prodigy because I'm a language prodigy. Husband in the book. I mean, um, I talk to people who knew how to fire guns because a gun goes off, you know, all those kind of things. You need to make sure that you get it right. Even if you're a reader might not do the research, somebody out there reading the book knows. And you have to, of course, you can't tell everyone's story, but you have to know that your version of this occurrence is correct for someone who could have experienced it, if not for everyone who did this. Obviously, when you're writing stuff, some ideas stick, some ideas don't. One of the ones I'm always curious about is titles. Uh, when you're starting your outline and you put a title in, do you have a working title you're going off of or do you nail it right from the beginning? Well, it really depends on the book. And that is, it's just so true. Most of the time, I have a working title that I think it's the final title until my publishers are like, oh no, <laughs> we are not using that. <laughs> There's actually no way we're going to use that title. So I'm like, oh, well, I thought it was pretty good. They're like, nope. Uh-uh. Um, so, you know, that, I mean, I have had books where we have come down to the wire because what happens is you cannot launch a book without a title. You could do a lot of things. There can be typos in it. There can be mistakes. It can even be unfinished, but you need the title because you can't be like, oh, we're so excited about book X. And everyone's like, oh, we're so excited. And then you come back and you're like, actually, we're going to name a Q instead of X. People are like, what? What, what are you talking about? What book? What? You know, so that's kind of the worst possible thing you can do to not have the title. And I have had working titles and then, you know, I had very stressed out emails from my editor that are like, Gene, launch meeting is next week. We really need a title. We need the title. We need a title. So, um, you know, that I'm generating all these titles that sound like bad Chinese restaurants. You know, they're like, no, the Jade Palace is no good. We are not going to do that. So, you know, that has is something I have definitely experienced um, in my career as a writer. But for this book, The Leftover Woman, the title was a gift. I knew from the beginning that it would be called The Leftover Woman, and everybody loved the title, and we have kept it all the way through. So yes, yeah, so luckily, we have managed to make it um, from beginning to end of this process with this title, The Leftover Woman. And you know, The Leftover Woman is actually a term, it's a propaganda term that is used by the Chinese government, because what happened was that they really wanted to lower the birth rate in China, but they succeeded so well that they have a problem now the other way, especially with 32 million extra men who cannot find a partner because, you know, 32 million. And what they have done is, you know, they've now eliminated the one-child policy and there is now propaganda to <laughs> shame women who are above a certain age. You know, it's something like if you're in your late 20s, they are already targeting you to call you the leftover women, meaning that these are the women who are not contributing and are not being useful and are kind of being tossed away like leftovers on a plate because um, they're not getting married and not having children. Uh, so, you know, it's gone kind of complete turnaround from the one child policy to now saying, well, if you don't have children, you are a leftover woman. And Jasmine in my novel is actually young enough that she is not being targeted in that yet for by this term. But the leftover woman applies to her kind of poetically and thematically as 
the person who has left after everyone else has taken what they wanted from her. I was going to ask if there was other layers to the title. So I'm glad to hear your analysis. That makes perfect sense. And this is a thriller suspense. So how do you kind of weave your breadcrumbs throughout, not reveal too much and keep that? Um, there's a lot of twists that happen that we can't reveal and and keep your readers engaged. I've learned that it's kind of writing a book is very much about knowing when to leave your reader with a question and that of course you want to answer those questions but not all at once you know so it's that whole issue with backstory that when I was more of a beginning writer I would kind of dump all the backstory and be like this is what happened and this is this and this is that and this is that and now I have a different philosophy now I think that I'm not going to give the reader any information until they are dying to know until they're like, please tell us what happened. Why? What is the relationship? What is going on with Jasmine and Anthony, her young childhood friend? So I withhold that information until we have a need to know. And then when we have the need to know, then that's ideal. Then I, you know, that I'm happy to show you a scene from the past explaining what their relationship is and how they got to the point where they're at. But but I always want to make sure that I plant something intriguing with every reveal so that when we figure out, you know, the answer to the first question, we have maybe two, three other questions where you're like, oh, but what about that? Well, how's that going to work out? How does she actually get out of that situation? So that, you know, it's like little hooks that take the reader from the beginning to the end of the book. And it's something you learn to do pretty naturally. But I also do think about it. I also do go through and I just make sure that I am not kind of tossing out information before the reader really wants it. That makes sense. Speaking of it being kind of thrillery and mystery, uh, you were one of 12 authors that were asked by the Agatha Christie estate to write an original authorized Miss Marple story for Marple, the 12 new mysteries. I, I got to know how this conversation went down because that, that seems like such an honor to have, you know, a, a, a mystery icon reach out to, to say, hey, you, you were chosen. So how did that go down? Yeah, that was really um, such a thrill. And especially because as you know, a first generation immigrant, Christy was one of the few writers I'd actually heard of, you know, something that she's so iconic that she had kind of penetrated the bubble that immigrants can be in because they just don't know the culture well enough. So it was just such a thrill to be asked. And I was, of course, like, yeah, like before they even finished, you know, speaking. Um, and what I really loved about it was having the opportunity to write a character as iconic as Ms. Marple and kind of to bring her into the modern age while remaining true to who she is. You know, I was the only Asian American writer in the 12 writers. They're wonderful, fantastic writers. But I thought, you know, I would really love to kind of bring her into Asia and show her a bit more of Asia. And so I very tentatively said to the Agatha Christie um, people, I was like, well, what do you think about her being on a cruise ship? You know, maybe like going somewhere like Hong Kong. And I was scared they'd be like, well, Miss Marple doesn't travel a whole lot. I mean, she has, but you know, that's kind of going really far. Maybe she should just stay, you know, in her little village in England where she belongs. And instead her uh, Agatha Christie's great grandson James was so positive. He was like, I love the idea. I love it. He's like, in fact, 
do you think we could actually get her off the cruise ship and have a scene of her really in Hong Kong? And he's like, of course, you know, with all respect. I mean, if it fits the story, only if it does. But I was like, oh my gosh, yes. So I really felt after they had come back with this very positive reaction that I, you know, I could do it and that I wasn't violating the boundaries of Marvelness in some way. And so, yeah, it was great. So Agatha Christie in my story in Marple, she is on a cruise ship uh, to Hong Kong and called the Jade Empress. And then the bodies start to fall in true Agatha Christie fashion and nobody can get on that ship. So, you know, and then in the end, yes, she has dim sum. And it was so much fun to write Miss Marple having dim sum and waltzing and doing Tai Chi um, because those are things that would have meant so much to me as a young Chinese person to see a character as iconic as Miss Marple engaging in a positive way with our culture. Did that experience influence The Leftover Woman at all? I think it did. I mean, I certainly did write that story while I was writing The Leftover Woman. So that happened at the same time. And I definitely thought at that time about plotting and intricacy and twists. Uh, you know, there's in order to write that story for Agatha Christie, I had to read a ton of Agatha Christie. So I reread her novels, I reread her short stories. And now, of course, I had read them when I was younger, but this time I really read them as a writer because in order to write that short story, I wanted to make sure that I was following her tradition. So I looked at really technical things like, what point of view is she using? When does she switch out of her point of view? When does she move from one character to another? Where does she plant the twists? And how does she plant them? So getting really technical with those stories. And that definitely helped me understand better how to write The Leftover Woman. Because Christy is really, she's really a genius. I mean, she makes it look so easy, but her prose is so spare. And the fact that she's able to plant all those red herrings without our noticing is is just fantastic. And that one was a book where I like shared it with multiple family members. We just passed it along. We really enjoyed oh. it. Your story was one of my favorite. And then I just imagine you having tea with Ruth Ware and Lucy Foley or something. <laughs> I don't know. Well, thank you. I did. I mean, I met Ruth and Lucy and uh, Alyssa Cole and so many and Ellie Griffiths. We did a tea event together in uh, in the UK not long ago. We're really we've really become the Marple sisters. And what I loved about reading that collection was also that you could tell, you know, you have some really big, heavy hitting, best selling authors in and award winning authors in writing that collection, but everyone tried to subsume their own voices to Christy. You know, we were all trying to channel her. And of course, your own influence comes through. Like, of course, my book, is, my story is still also about immigration and race. And those themes are kind of a part of the way I write. But I did try to channel her voice that it's really a Christy story, not a Jean Kwok story, and to follow her style and to technically just replicate, you know, her manner of working as best I could. I think all of us tried to do that. And you have Katz's characters. You have Calypso and the Leftover Woman, and that is one of your cats. And the search for Sylvie Lee has another of your cats, Couscous. 
And I also Instagram love pictures of your cats, especially Mona and Lisa. I think they're cat models. <laughs> they're just gorgeous. Can you share a little bit how you decided to put cats in and weave them into your stories? Well, it wasn't really a decision. It's more that I'm really obsessed by cats. It's kind of like a crazy cat lady. Um, so that's the thing. I mean, if you kind of let me go, I would probably just write stories about cats and nothing else. So, you know, it's more like trying to keep the cats under control and trying to keep only like one cat per book. But indeed, every single book of mine has my real cats in them, has one or two real cats in them. It's like one of the funnest part of the book for me. And it, and you're right that on social media, like some of my cats are so, you know, like good looking that I get all kinds of people writing to me like, would you please put this product on your cat and take a picture and we'll pay you? <laughs> oh my God. You don't want a picture of me? They're like, no, 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 not you. Just just the cat. The cat's great. Not, not you. Um, so Calypso is the star. Well, she thinks she's the star of The Leftover Woman. And uh, she's got a very twisty kind of a role in The Leftover Woman as, as well. Um, and she's my little calico cat. And she's a rescue. And she's just, she's so cute. And she has such a bad temper. So <laughs> somehow, I don't know, I've heard that they're very feisty calicos, but I have only got one. She really is. She's by far the smallest cat in the house, like physically but she's just so bad tempered like she's very very sweet but it's like you better not get in between her and her food or the door like the other cats are like backing away you know Mona is my rag doll and she's a huge white cat and she's probably twice the size of Calypso but like you know if Calypso wants the cat treat Calypso gets the cat treat one of the things we like to do is we like to play a little game. Uh, you might know it as something different, but because we are a PG podcast, we call it Kiss, Mary Ditch. <laughs> okay. Uh, we I've got two categories here for you. We'll let you pick one. I've hidden them behind some, some things, so you don't know exactly what you're getting into. But I'm going to let you choose here. I've got Loose Leaf and Thousand Yard of Stare. Thousand Yard of Stare. We're going to talk dancing. All right, I can do that. <laughs> you you spent some time teaching at the uh, Astaire studio. I did. Um, so I'm going to make you choose between three styles of dancing. Wow, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so like love and one you're going to get rid of. All right. Waltz, swing, and mambo. Oh, I do love all three of those dances. I would get rid of swing. You're gonna get rid of swing. Which one? Which one is your favorite of those remaining two? Mambo. Why is that? Well, because you know, as you said, when I was uh, in between my degrees at Harvard and Columbia, I worked for three years as a professional ballroom dancer for Fred Astaire Studios in uh, New York City on the Upper East Side. And when you're a professional, people are like, what does that mean? Like, what do you mean you're a professional ballroom dancer? It means that you teach and you compete. And so I taught students, I taught private lessons in all 10 dances, but I also competed professionally. And so when you compete, you compete with your students. So you don't count in those competitions. Your student is the only one being judged. It is your job to kind of beat them on the beat and, you know, get them off around the floor, move them around, especially as a woman who is, you know, following. We used to call like our left hand, the five fingers of death, because that's what you're clutching like the guy's arm with. And like, he's trying to move off the beat and you're like, yeah, 
you're smiling all the time, but like you've got that rigid hand on him. Like, don't step yet. Do not step. We are not going to the left. We're going to the right. You know, because you're the professional Mm -hmm. and you're trying to get him through that competition. So with my students, I competed in all 10 dances. But as a professional, where you have a professional partner and you dance together, the level is much, much higher. It's really difficult. And your physicality has to do with what you can compete in. And I'm five feet tall. I am small. And there are two big categories in dance. There's the smooth dances and the Latin dances. So the smooth dances are like waltz, tango, and foxtrot. And I'm way too short to ever win in those those categories. I can do them. I love those dances, but I will never win because they love those really tall dancers that can sweep across the floor and kind of, you know, go across in two strides. So for me, just physically, Latin was what I needed to compete in. It's also what I love because I love turns. I love hips. I love really fast movements. I don't like being really tied to my partner. It'd be like hip to hip the way you are in the smooth dances as much as I enjoyed them both. So yeah, so Mambo, of course, is one of the dances that I um, I did and loved and competed in. My second novel is, you know, called mm-hmm. Mambo in Chinatown. And a spinoff of the Mambo in Chinatown, that's when I reached out to you first is after doing a program. I did a, a book and film and Mambo in Chinatown was our book. And then it was a PBS POV called Dance With Me, which was a documentary on dancing. And then I brought in dancers from the Fred Astaire studio that was local. It was a wonderful experience. And your book helped make that happen. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy to hear that. That's thrilling. I can remember that uh, 20 something years ago, my wife and I, for our, our wedding, we went and learned to do a foxtrot that, that we were doing to Dean Martin's uh, kick in the head. We we were not going to go out there on that on our wedding night and be the fools that just did that little things. We had an entire number production. It was it was. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Well, that was, I obviously I'm biased, but I think that that is very wise because, you know, we call, we used to call it the clutch and sway, you know, when it like, it feels great to dance with your partner and to be in love and to be being married. It does not look that great like when videoed and watched by 800 people. So, or you can do it, but if you're going to not do a choreographed dance, I always think keep it really, really short, like way shorter than you think you need, because, you know, a minute is an eternity on the dance floor. You can do, you know, it takes weeks to learn choreography that feels just one minute. So like, you know, if you keep like a little, if you're not going to choreograph it to dance for like 10, 15 seconds, that's really more than enough. Uh, but if you're going to dance for two minutes, like to a whole song without choreography, that is usually not a great experience for anybody. <laughs> so good for you. So follow up question, because, you know, we live in an age of television here. Obviously, there's a show out here that, that people tune into. Are we going to expect to see you on, on Dancing with the Stars then? Uh, well, I don't know about that, but I really think that we can do, we can like pitch a much better show that's going to be much more commercially um, interesting to the barter public than Dancing with the Stars. And that is Dancing with the Librarians. How ah. about that? Okay, I'm still on Dancing with the Librarians. I'm uh, partner. I used to do Lindy Hop Swings, but it's been a while. So I'd have to see if I could step it up. <laughs> 
lot yeah, of cardio. Lindy, <laughs> Lindy Harp is, is hard because you've it's got those hard. extra two beats in the middle. Wow. Yeah, I, I so don't know fun. how to do. I know. I wish I learned more West Coast because I think that's a little bit easier to get into than Lindy Hop. They're, they're both great. And I have to say, you know, we are especially, you know, we we used to teach a lot of East Coast swing and not so much okay. um, West Coast. So, cool. you know, and it's I, I, I love, I mean, I love it. But Lindy Hop is a kind of, you know, it's a pretty advanced version of normal swing. So that's impressive. It was fun. It was fun. What is an average writing day like for you? It depends on how close to the deadline we are, friends. So, um, you know, a normal writing day when the deadline is still nicely far away, usually I get up, uh, you know, and I really, I really do try to create a ritual. I don't tend to eat a lot for breakfast, so I'll go down and quickly just get a cup of tea or something really light, but I don't, I don't eat a lot. I come back, I go to my computer and I will try to do something restful and meditative, like listen to some calming music. I have an aromatherapy, um, little oil diffuser. I'll light that. I'll hold my crystals. You know, I do a kind of nice soft intro into the writing world. Um, and I'll usually start by writing in my journal. So not diving right into the book, but the journal. And, and then a little bit about where I am, what I'm thinking, what I want to do that day. Then I'll read what I've been working on and where I am in it. And then I'll try to move forward. And usually, you know, I feel like it's hard to work very intensively for longer than like, let's say three hours. So I'm lucky enough to be a full-time writer. So if I can do that, that's ideal. But <laughs> the closer we get to the deadline, guys, it's like, you know, the, then my back's up against the wall. I'm getting the emails in from my team, like, when's it coming I'm like oh it's almost done just a little polish you know meanwhile I've got like 200 pages to write uh, oh my God. so you know then um then the writing days kind of get longer and longer but it's not ideal I would like to be one of those people who could just kind of do it very regularly and be done like two weeks in advance so that's my life goal I'll let you guys know with the next book how it's coming <laughs> Another quote that I got from you here is, you promised yourself long ago that you would never allow fear to stop you from doing something that you truly wanted to do. So what is that next fear you want to conquer? You know, that's, I think, I think you guys are amazing. I mean, this is what happens when you get interviewed by librarians. They find out stuff about you that nobody else knows, librarians slash spies, right? Um, yeah, I, uh, I, you know, I have so many fears, but I think, you would think you're going to think this is really crazy, but I think people who are writers will understand. I'm afraid of writing. You know, I know that's like a fish being like, I'm afraid of water. I understand that this is, might sound strange, but I, I do, I, I do get scared of writing because a book is a huge project. I mean, it's scary. Like it's scary, especially when you're at the beginning and you don't have anything yet. And you know, talk about decision fatigue. Like I can barely buy shampoo, you know, it takes me hours to choose a shampoo. So it's like, you can imagine in a book, there are just so many decisions. What's it going to be about? Which is the point of view? Who's going to be the main character? How am I going to structure it? Is it any good? You know, there are just so many fears that you have with writing. And so 
part of the process I explained to you is like the way it is because I'm trying to conquer those fears that I have, you know, that I'm trying to, you know, say it's all right. I can go in, I can just enjoy it. It's, it's going to be a book someday. I can trust the process. I can trust the brainstorming Um, because, you know, like you said earlier, it is kind of terrifying to create something from nothing. That would be, that would be the fear that I would love to conquer so that I could just enter into the writing without any fear. This has been a topic that has come up so many times throughout our our interviewing of people is the the imposter syndrome that that seems to 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 come along with award winning best selling writers like yourself and and, and it it's so amazing to me that because you know there's so many times where I'm just like oh no I'm not even going to try that because you know I'm, I'm going to suck at it right away but meanwhile you've got these people that are creating amazing things and, and you're over there thinking the same things that you know. And just overcoming that fear. Yeah. There is so much fear. And somebody said something to me recently that I thought was really wise. And I don't remember where I read it or heard it, but it was, it was that like how good you are or how good you can be at something is directly related to how willing you are to bear being bad at it. And what that means is that the more you can tolerate being bad at something, the better you're going to be at it. Because what happens is that, you know, we start something, we're really terrible at it. We're like, oh God, we're never doing that again. I have no aptitude for that whatsoever. And we're stopping that right now because I'm embarrassed and I just don't want anybody to ever know that I attempted to do that. But if you can tolerate it or if you love it enough that you're willing to keep at it, it's like, you can become amazing at almost anything, you know, or you can definitely become much more amazing than you are, but you need to be able to tolerate being bad. And that is hard. And I can tell you my first drafts are really bad. You know, they're just, they're so bad. And like, it's so bad that I have told my kids that if I die before a book is done, you need to like destroy all the files as they cannot be seen by anyone. And you have to be able to tolerate you know, how incredibly awful it is and not judge yourself and not say this is concrete proof that I am the worst writer ever born. And, you know, be willing to go back in and to try to fix it. And then somehow, miraculously, in between drafts, you will have a scene that is really the worst thing ever written by a human being. And it can turn into something that's actually all right, you know? So that is uh, that is always the hopeful thing. Searching for Sylvie Lee, it was a read with Jenna selection. What was that like? Oh, that was really amazing, of course. Jenna is a a truly lovely and kind person, also off camera. Um, And just to be able to be a part of the Today Show Read with Jenna family was incredible. Um, Searching for Sylvie Lee reached a really broad audience. And that that was just so much fun as an author to have all these new readers discover your work. From what I understand, the next book might be set at Harvard. Yes, that's true. The one I'm writing right now. Uh, Can you tell us anything about it? Well, I just went to Harvard this summer to do research um, and to kind of go into the library and the stacks and the houses just to see as much of it as I could to understand the setting and the situation and the boundaries um, of my story. So it is a murder set at Harvard with a group of friends. And it's it's really it's really a lot of fun to write. I will 
tell you that there is um, an infamous swimming pool in one of the Harvard houses where people would always swim naked. And it was uh, it was just a known thing. And it was not officially allowed, but, you know, the, like people would look the other way because it's just a known thing that people did that. And all kinds of stuff obviously happened when you have undergraduates swimming nude in a pool in the dark because you can't turn on the lights or you'll get caught. You know, and now I, I think we're going to have a murder happen there as well. I'm looking forward. And um, speaking of being brave, because I know even with the fear topic, this was so brave of you. I saw your recorded public comments when you went to Central Box, Pennsylvania, to the school board meeting. You went from the Netherlands to Pennsylvania to speak out for your title, Girl in Translation, to stay on the shelves. And you did an amazing job. So if anyone wants to to listen, it is online. I hope it had a positive outcome. And could you just share a little bit about the need to speak out for your books and be there in person? Right. So my debut novel, Girl in Translation, is taught in schools around the world. So it kind of makes sense that it became targeted and challenged by book bans. And I first heard about the, uh, the fact that it was being challenged in Central Bucks, Pennsylvania, because um, a parent wrote to me and said, I'd like to defend your book. Would you like to write something that I could read? And as I was writing it, I started to do more research into the whole issue. I did not know a lot about it. I have a lot of librarian friends and teacher friends. And I just realized, like, you know, people are really under siege. I mean, it, it's such a difficult situation for so many people working in the library system or teaching in schools. And I just thought, you know, I, I need to do something about this. I need to, I have, a, I have the ability to say something. And I knew that if I went in person to Pennsylvania, the issue would get much more media attention than if the parent just read a statement by me. Um, so I decided to do it. I was scared. I was nervous doing it. Uh, but actually, everyone was very civilized and listened to me in a, you know, in a very polite way. So I was grateful for that. Um, although I had been warned to hire private security before I went, because they had actually, you know, they'd removed a man with a gun from a meeting earlier. So, you know, I, I really went not knowing what I would find. I was glad to do it. And indeed, the video of that has gone viral. Um, and I'm glad that I've done a tiny little bit in that whole fight against books that are being challenged. I think that, you know, it's something, it, it's, it's hard to be a librarian nowadays. And that libraries need all of the support we can give them in every single way so that they can continue to be there for us uh, the way they always have been. And speak out for all voices to be heard as well. And when it was Girl in Translation, I was like, I don't remember anything. I think that would be perfect for a teen. <laughs> There's no sex or violence in it. That's yeah. the thing. That's That's what I also understood was that I have a book that is really defensible because it is really very, very PG. It wouldn't even get a PG-13 rating if it were mm -hmm. a movie. So I thought, you know, the, it, it just seems like then there's something else going on. And um, I just wanted to call attention to that, that books are being challenged that maybe have not been read, that they're being challenged for the wrong reasons. And it happens to be about a young immigrant girl. And we need stories like that. You know, we need people to be able to choose what they read. So I, I did feel it was important to do that. And because that book is so widespread, I think that's one of the reasons that it got picked to be challenged. 
And speaking of reading, what are you currently reading slash watching? Oh my goodness. Well, I honestly don't watch a lot because I'm too busy reading. I'm like really a, a, a reader. Um, no, so some books that I have loved recently have been Broadway Butterfly by Sarah DeVello. So I was actually at her launch and that's a true crime thriller that she does such an incredible job researching. The Puzzle Master by Danielle Trisoni is another book that is such an incredible thriller like type book, but with so much depth and history and with a little dash of like the supernatural um, in it as well. So, you know, those are some of the books that I've been reading that I've really loved. I mean, there are just so many good books coming out. I have a book twin, um, Nancy June Kim. Her new book, What We Kept to Ourselves, is coming out um, the same day as my book. And that's a beautiful book as well. Beautifully written, a family drama slash suspense mystery. So, yeah, those are just a couple. I've been really in the mood for for just mysteries. It's like spooky season. I just want a little bit of, yeah. Absolutely. Totally. One of the questions I love asking is what is the strangest thing in your search history? Oh, yes. The strangest thing in my search history is probably linked to the Agatha Christie story that I wrote um, about the cruise and Ms. Marple being on the cruise. And it is how to get rid of a body on a 1960s cruise ship. So I was like, because I I did not know this, but it was almost impossible to get rid of a body in those days. So uh, because obviously these days on a cruise ship, you can just have them go over the balcony, right? And into the ocean and they're gone. They didn't have balconies in those days. So there was no balcony, even like in the nicest types of, so these are the kind of things, you know, writers have to check because if you get it wrong that is just so i find it so offensive to your readership that you were sloppy in your work so there were no balconies and the portholes were tiny like you you have to spend like hours chopping somebody up before you could get them over so i was like okay we can't get rid of a body that way how about we drag them into the hallway and like tossed them overboard so i like researched all these pictures of cruise ships from that era they had lifeboats hanging underneath and it was like ah the body's gonna hit the lifeboat you'd have to be like an incredibly strong person who could lift a body over your head and like toss it like six feet out so i was like okay body's gonna be found There was just like no other way. It was like, we are not getting rid of the body. Like the body is going to be in the cabin. We are going to find the body. So that was fine. Uh, but yes, that was a really tricky question. Can I just say that? Mm-hmm. I'm glad I had an answer. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of use it, it, it because so many times people are, they can't talk about what's coming next. So it's a, it's a gauge for sometimes of what's on the horizon too, that we can subtly slip in there. I love it. Absolutely love it. And this is an easy one to answer, but we are a library podcast. So how have libraries impacted your life? Oh my gosh, libraries are so important to me because I did not speak English when I came to the U.S. And there were teachers who were not that nice to me. I mean, there were also very kind educators, thank goodness. But I had a teacher who would just mark every page with a big red X 
And she really didn't care that I was not doing it right because I did not speak a word of English. I just didn't know what we were supposed to do. And I was living in the freezing cold apartment in New York City. We had to have the oven door open in order to have any kind of heat in the apartment. There was ice on the windows all winter long. And I worked in a clothing factory that was filled with fabric dust and you know, incredibly unhygienic conditions. And my public library was a tremendous refuge for me. It was an emotional, intellectual, and a physical refuge. It was a place that was clean and warm, filled with kind librarians who were always bringing me books. And I loved books so much. I mean, I, I, I learned how to read there. You know, I fell in love with books and with reading in my public library. And every single book that I, um, I owned as a child was a result of one of the gifting programs at the library. You know, they used to have these drives, like if you would read so many books, you could pick out a paper book and take it home. And I was like, really? Oh, my God. And I just cherished those books. They were the only ones I had because we were so poor. And so, yeah, libraries and librarians, they have my devotion forever. Absolutely. As we kind of wrap up here, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, just that, you know, I love um, libraries. I believe that libraries really need our support in every single way right now. Um, so please do support your local library and your librarians. And if you're there and you happen to pick up a copy of The Leftover Woman, I really hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on Unstacked. This has been such a treat. Yes. I loved chatting with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the pleasure has been all ours, I assure you. Thank you so much, Jean, for joining us on Unstacked. The Leftover Woman will be available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendor. Check out her website, jeanquok.com. That's J-E-A-N-K-W-O-K.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.